here, here we go. We are back into our study in Hebrews. Um, it is, uh, we have, in, since we've begun, we have seen that Jesus is, of all the ways that God has spoken, Jesus is the greatest way that God has revealed himself. God has put him forward as his greatest expression of himself. Jesus is God. We've learned that. We've seen that. He's divine. Jesus is greater than angels. And then last week, as we closed, we came across the first of several warnings that we're going to come to in this letter. Because Jesus is who he is, and the work that he accomplished is what it is, we must not neglect it. So that is the warning. And for the sake of context, because this really is a, 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 an exhortation. It's probably more a sermon than a bunch of just doctrinal bullet points that he explains. The, the reality is, is that we're breaking into this every week in places that we're breaking it down when it likely was intended to be read in one sitting and thought about as a whole. We're coming to it in sections and, and approaching different pieces of the argument and so we need to wrestle with and, and listen to how the context flows. So for the sake of that context, we're actually going to start back at the end of the passage or the beginning of chapter 2 where we ended last week so that we can see the flow. So this was a warning. They had two, chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 is where we're going to start. This was a warning. And it, the, the warning came out of, was, was resultant from the, the author of Hebrews showing so clearly that Jesus and his work is superior to the angels and, and their message that they brought. And not that they didn't have a message to bring, not that it wasn't valuable and important for its time, but the message that Jesus brought was even greater. And as a result, the author saw fit to pause his teaching, pause his ex- exhortation, so that he could provide a warning to his readers. And so that, that's where we're going to start, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. We'll read it. Actually, we're going to do something a little different. Typically, we read the text and we pray, but, but because we're going to be dealing with it in multiple sections, I'm going to pray now. We'll read the text and we'll jump in. So, so let's pray. Father, this is your word. We, we, we know that to be true. We know that you have worked in might and power to make it known to us. And so as we study this, this written word, help us learn. Spirit, lead us to truth. Point us to Jesus. Help us see his exalted um, victorious standing. Help us to, to, to hear the warning and heed the warning, and then help us to fully understand why it's so necessary. Father, help us now, I pray. Lead us, shape us, and mold us that we might more fully reflect your image as, as we grow as a result. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we go, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the messenger, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed, distributed according to His will. Now let's just stop right there and let's, let's just get our eyes back on that warning. We didn't deal with it deeply last week. We didn't look at every nuance. We just heard the warning, and that's where we want to start today. We must not neglect the salvation provided by Jesus Christ Because there is no greater salvation and no greater Savior. Let me say it again. We must not neglect the salvation provided by Jesus Christ. 
because there is no greater salvation and no greater Savior. The message that Jesus brought, the message that was first attested by him, was then further attested by the apostles that followed him. But more than that, God the Father from heaven affirmed this message with signs and wonders and various miracles. The, the, the lame were, were able to walk, the blind were made to see, the deaf were made to hear, the dead were raised. This, this message that Jesus declared to us was attested to by those eyewitnesses that walked with him, that saw him, that heard him with their own ears. But further, it was affirmed by the powerful miracles uh, from God. And then further, even further, the Holy Spirit comes in and gifts his people to continue doing these powerful, miraculous works. And I think we would be remiss if we run past this and miss the triune function of our God who has made the gospel known. Listen, at the, at the core, at the heart of all that we will say, at the, at the very foundation of all that is to be said about the gospel, this is why we must fight for it. This is why we must not neglect it. Because it is the message of the ages that the triune God, God the Father, through God the Son, and now the Holy Spirit, is making known so that people can know Him, walk with Him, and enjoy Him. That's not the only reason. But it is a clear and and serious reason. The author gives us a second reason in this warning. The second reason he gives us is he points to the lesser or inferior position of the angels and the message that they brought. This is likely a reference to the Old Testament. Now, if you read in the Old Testament, there is not a clear statement that says the angels mediated the law to Moses, or spoke the law, brought the law to Moses. But clearly, there are three New Testament references to it here in Hebrews. Once in Acts, when Stephen is being stoned, he makes reference to it. And then once in Galatians, Paul makes reference to it. Whether or not these are statements in, in speaking of angels, as we consider them angels, or they're simply messengers from God, we, we don't know with certainty or clarity. But clearly, what we do know is that in the first century, in Jesus' day, there was a Jewish tradition in which angels, like angels that we picture angels, angels with wings that come down, you know, like Gabriel and Michael, and these, these angels coming down from heaven as messengers from God, would visit with Moses and, and share with him the law. We'll get to find out for certain when we get to heaven how how that actually functioned. Since we weren't there and nothing is stated clearly enough. But it seems that the author here is referring back to the Mosaic Covenant. And the time in which the message came from angels to Moses. And he's saying, look, that proved uh, reliable. That was a reliable covenant in its place for its time. But, and, and, let me say, and. If it had retribution, if it had consequences for disobedience, how much more serious is it? How much greater are the consequences if we neglect the one that the triune God sets forth as his greatest? Like, that's the reasoning this this author gives us. First, the triune God is the one working it, the one affirming it and showing it to be true. But second, if if his other covenants had, had retribution, had consequence as a result of ignoring it, how much more this one? How much greater this one. Now for the first century, excuse me, for the first century Hebrew Christian, 
This is likely the struggle. Again, this is, not, this is contested. It's not absolutely clear in the text. Seems, maybe, from inferring all, his, all, all the author's work here to, to emphasize the contrast and distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, that this is probably what they're struggling with. But, but for them, for that first century Hebrew who's reading this letter, likely their struggle is drifting away from the gospel in order to return to the law and to Moses and the things that they've always known. That's probably their struggle. We see that across the New Testament. Paul deals with it in Galatians. Seems like the writer of Hebrews dealing with it here. Tempted to return to things like, yeah, Jesus is good, but circumcision is still necessary. I must still circumcise my child on the eighth day or he can't be one of God's chosen people. Jesus is great, but pork is still a no-no because the Mosaic law says I can't have it. It's unclean. Now, for the American Christian, though, as we sit and read this, we're probably not wrestling with going back to the law. <laughs> Excuse me, sorry. It's allergies, not COVID. <clears throat> sorry, that totally sidetracked me. I don't know why I said that. <clears throat> anyway, we probably are not wrestling with returning to the Mosaic covenant or the law, right? Like, that's probably not first and foremost the struggle we have. But as dangerous it was for them, as serious it was for them to drift in their day back to that comfortable thing, back to that thing that they had always known, it is just as real that we are in danger of drifting ourselves. We dealt with this some last week. We need to deal with it again. We need to continue to hear this warning to not drift, to not neglect the salvation provided by Jesus because there is no greater salvation, no greater savior we're not we're not in danger probably of returning to moses and and the mosaic law but we are in danger of drifting away from the gospel in pursuit of the american dream it is a gospel that jesus loves you and you've attained favor from him if you have the right number of kids the right kind of cars in the garage the right number of spaces in your garage and the right number of rooms in your house And, and let's not forget we have to have the white picket fence that runs around it right like there is this American dream that, that has been talked about and promoted, this, this affluence and comfort that most of us have grown up with the idea that that is a demonstration or, 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 or a way in which we appreciate and enjoy God's favor. Heaven is defined as being comfortable and, and spending as much time in comfort as possible. In fact, Americans really don't know how to suffer. I I really believe that's why we've had such a hard year, year and a half, because we have been faced with the realities of our sin and our weakness and our our lack of, of control and power. And we've been confronted on every front, but we don't know how to run to God who provides. We've lost sight of the gospel. We've depended too much on this American dream. And it has come crashing down around us. And if you think you're sitting in this room and you're not at risk for drifting into this, when all of the culture around us is running after it, you need to hear this warning. We're in danger of drifting from the gospel into the religion of politics. I saw this maybe more clearly this last sequence than any, and I have talked a lot about politics. I continue to bring it as applications and illustrations because it has become 
the American religion. And both sides have their savior and their demon. They have their orthodox traditions, their orthodox beliefs. You can look at the Republican platform website, the Democrat platform website, and you can see clearly their stated and approved doctrines. And if you agree with those doctrines, then you're one of the good guys. If you disagree with one of those doctrines, you're one of the demons. And it doesn't matter which side you're on. There's a stated heaven and a, and a consequence for not getting the right thing. If we elect the wrong person, we're headed to hell. And it's funny that depending on what, what side of the line you stand on, determines who that person's supposed to be. But you, individually, as an American, practicing the religion of politics, get to be the judge of that. As if either party will actually lead us to heaven. You get that, right? Man, churches, brothers and sisters in Christ... That we're in danger of drifting away into these things. We're, we're in danger of drifting into, or I'm sorry, away from the gospel of Jesus into social gospel, poverty gospel, prosperity gospel. And each of these gospels, so-called gospels, have their own stated uh, religious practices, their own stated heavens and, and achievements in which we will achieve the supposed uh, euphoria that's promised in heaven, and we'll receive it all right now. The prosperity gospel, if you have enough faith, if you find the right TV preacher with enough big gold rings, and you send him your seed deposit, like your, you know, your seed of faith, and you give him just the right amount of money, and God's going to return that tenfold. Well, God loves you. You've arrived at heaven. You have enough faith. You are finally acceptable to God if you suddenly get rich. The poverty gospel looks around at our brothers and sisters in Christ and says, if you don't give as much as me, if you have more than me, if you live in a nice house, if you drive a nice car, if you yourself aren't making yourself poor purposely to show your righteousness, you're not as righteous as me. And these lies. They're false gospels. They're false ways for us to attain the idea of salvation in heaven. The social gospel says we can do something to attain heaven on earth. We're going to rid the world of poverty. We're going to end the, the class and gender and race wars. We're finally going to be done with all that. We're finally going to... No, 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 hear, hear me. Hear me. Please hear me. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't speak to these things, that we shouldn't involve ourselves in these things. But if we approach them as if we are going to do something by our own power, with our own ingenuity without a proclamation of the gospel that actually transforms the hearts, that transforms the individual, that transforms the systems that all these people make up. If we think that we're going to finally establish Christendom and it's going to last forever, these are lies. And we, American Christian, we may not be in danger of drifting off to the old covenant, but we are in danger of drifting away from Jesus, the gospel that he brought, that he fought for, that he won for us, and into these other gospels. And we need to hear, even though the, alternative, the message is an alternative, it's a different message, we need to hear and heed these warnings. We need to be reminded by the writer of Hebrews that Jesus is the greatest Savior, and He brought the greatest and only true salvation. This is it. 
So hear this warning. Heed this warning. When Hebrews now turns, he's going to shift. With that warning ringing in our ears, he's going to shift and he's going to move away from showing us the greatness of Jesus in contrast to the angels. He's going to show us how desperately we need to be saved and show us that Jesus is the only one that can do that. So picking up Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 18. He writes, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Man, just sit and think about that for a second. I, I, I am astonished every time I come to that word. My Savior Jesus, your Savior Jesus, calls you brother. Well, if that doesn't just put you down a peg or two. And at the same time, lift your head up in, in just adoration. Look, look at what he has done. Come on, I, I got to keep going. That is, that, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore, the children share the flesh, share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to to be made like his brothers in every respect so so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, we could unintentionally, accidentally just read right past verse 5, getting into the meat of the rest of the text, and miss the fact that he tells us, that the, the author tells us here, it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Now, look at that. What, what is that? That's a reference not to the present day, but the time to come. It's, it's, it's looking forward to a time in which Jesus' kingdom is fully and absolutely 100% established. When we finish chapter 1, if you, if you look back at, at the end of chapter 1, in verse 13, it says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at, my right, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? We see Jesus at, in his throne, enemies a footstool completely enthroned in victory, right? We see that. We see him saying, this is finished. This this life, this world to come is one in which Jesus' authority is absolute. There's no contest. There's no one contesting against him. He is victorious. Enemies are at his feet in this world. But 
But he says in this present day, we don't actually see it. It, it, it's, it's a difficult place for us because we know that there's something so much more to look forward to. And we try to get all of that to experience it right now. Right? The promises of God in the gospel and salvation, they start today. But they will ultimately and completely be full, fully realized in the world to come. We live in this already but not yet reality. I, I, I don't know another way to say it. Jesus has won the victory. He died on the cross. And he rose from the grave. And he ascended and he took his place by the Father. That has been done. But over these last 2,000 years since that's happened, as he sits in victory, enthroned, victorious, he waits for the day when he come and f- comes to fully consummate that kingdom. Yes, his kingdom has come. It is already here. His rule has been established. But we don't see it in completion yet. We don't see it fully consummated yet. There is a day in which he will return. And, and, and in physical reality. So he's addressing this. And he says that world, that world, that wasn't to be subjected to, to angels Look back again at the end of, end of chapter 1. Are, are they referring to the angels, not just ministering spirits sent out to serve? Angels are only and have ever only been messengers and ministers. They were not created for dominion. They were not created in t- t- to have dominion in this world. They were not created to have dominion in the next world. The only clear example of an angel that exercised dominion is the devil. I mean, there's demons alongside him, but we get a clear picture of the devil seeking to exercise dominion. And that's not good, right? It leads to destruction. He's called the adversary, the destroyer. He, he, he walks around seeking to, to, to devour. The reality is, is that, that that is not ever what they were intended for. That's not what they were created for. And this is not what he is intending. He wants us to see again the angels have a place. They have a role. They're messengers, messengers and ministers. But now he's going to turn to man. And he's shown us, he's shown us angels. But man, what is man? And so drawing on Psalm 8, it's a Psalm of David. He doesn't even mention this time. He just says it's been testified somewhere. Now, this guy, whoever wrote Hebrews, proves to us all the way through that he knows the Old Testament. This guy knows the Old Testament better than Old Testament professors at your favorite seminary knows it. This guy knows the Old Testament scriptures. So this statement, it's been testified. So he's, he, he's not forgetting. It, it just is, a, it, again, he is not at all ever giving credence to human authors. Uh, we see it over and over again. It's been testified somewhere. This is Psalm 8, specifically verses 4 through 6, I believe. Let me see on my notes. <clears throat> yes, Psalm 8, 4 through 6. And he turns to man. And as he does, he begins to show us, hey, this world to come, the, 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 the present reality, demonstrate why you need to, to, to pay attention, to pay careful attention, to not neglect the salvation offered by Jesus. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out three ways through this text in which these, these three insurmountable obstacles, if you will, that I believe are presented and represented in this text that, that he shows us and why we must continue to heed this warning. First, we must not neglect our Savior Because we can't be all we were created to be without Jesus. 
We must not neglect our Savior because we can't be all we were created to be without Jesus. Look at Psalm 8 as, as referenced here by, by, by the author of Hebrews. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Now, if you look back in the original context of the psalm, David is, David is extolling, I mean, he's exhorting, he's just praising God and he comes to this place and he considers or, or he thinks and he, and he sees the stars and, and, and this, the, the moon and the heavens laid out before him, the, the creation ahead of him. And he stops and he's like, what is man that you even consider him? It's the feeling, I don't know if you've ever got this feeling before, but, but for me it's every time I walk into, not walk into, but drive into or experience uh, like going into the mountains. And I'm not talking about going to the Ozark Mountains and looking at the hills down south of us. That's, I'm talking about like the Rockies or this a couple summers ago I got to be in the Andes and in Peru and I'm, I, you're suddenly made very small. Uh, you're suddenly surrounded by this majestic reality of how big the world is and how small you are. And there's this humbling sense in which you stand there and you think, oh God, you did this. You're the one that raised the peaks of this mountain this high. And I can barely breathe up here. And this is still low to you. And it's humbling and, and, and moving and, and worship inspiring all at the same time. And there's this reality that, and I could just see David, I could, I could stand there with him. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while. And this is the Septuagint. If you read it in the Hebrew, it reads it a little bit differently. But from the Greek, it reads, you made him for a little while. There's a temporary position. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So he quotes and he references that psalm. And then he begins to prove a point from it. You pick up in verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. And so while the, while the author is clearly looking to what is coming, he is recognizing that the reality of today is not what we know it one day will be. <laughs> and I think for him, he's like, how in the world are we ever going to get there? How do we arrive at that place? How do we attain to these things? How do we take on this identity? How do we become these people if not for Christ? We can't be all we were created to be without Jesus. See, the, the struggle, there's a struggle, and I, I want to be fair to this text. There's a struggle here. If you look at verse 8, he finishes the psalm. If you'll just follow along, he, he writes, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left, every, he left nothing outside of his control. And here's the question. Who are these pronouns pointing to? Are they pointing to Jesus? Are they pointing to mankind? Are, are, we, are we reading about that, that nothing, not everything is under mankind's subjection? Or are we reading that yet, not yet everything is under Jesus' subjection? So I've come, after studying it, reading it, bo both pos positions, that one says this is Jesus, and if it's Jesus, then you have to read and interpret it this way. And, and, and one says this is G uh, uh, mankind, and because of that, you have to read and interpret it this way. I've, I've become convinced that the first part of chapter, uh, or of verse 8, is referring to mankind. So it would read something like this through 8 and 9. Now, in putting everything in subjection to mankind, because that's where he referenced it from the psalm, 
Now, in putting everything in subjection to mankind, God left nothing outside of mankind's control. Now, I want to just draw your attention back to Genesis. What did God do when he created man? Go, fill the earth, multiply, rule, and subdue. Right? That was the original creation command. In putting everything in subjection to mankind, God left nothing outside of mankind's control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to mankind. I think that's the point he's making. I think, based on all I've studied and all my reading, I think that's really what he's getting at. As we look around, we are not what we were supposed to be. Because of Adam and Eve's sin against God, their rebellion, going the other way, doing their own thing, they fell. They fell from glory. I mean, you just consider it. They were created in His image. They were crowned with His glory at creation. This is who mankind created us to be, but we are not that. And how can we possibly be that? We can't be all we were created to be if not for Jesus. If if, If this is where it ends and there's no story after, then we're in trouble. But, he says, but, We do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. I believe his whole intention is to help us see the reality of our standing so that we'll look to Jesus, the one who has done what we can't do. And you just consider it. Do we rule? Do we have subjection? Do do we exercise dominion? Any, any inkling of control we think we have, it's, it's, it's not true. I appreciate one of the commentaries I'm reading from, one of the pastors that wrote and, and, and dealt with this. He writes this. It's not on the screen. I can give it to you later if you want, but he just wrote this. If God placed everything under man's feet, then something has gone awry. <laughs> yeah. Something's wrong. If we begin making a list of those things in the world, very evidently not under man's control, it quickly becomes quite large. Man is at the mercy of weather. Who got woke up by the thunderstorms this morning? Who, got, who, who can stop them? Jesus did. He calmed winds, and he calmed waves, and he walked on water. And his followers were like, who is this man that even controls the weather? Tell me he doesn't have subjection and, do, and dominion. Man is at the mercy of weather. His food supply, even today, is greatly influenced by forces outside of his control. Remember when COVID hit and we thought COVID was just a sickness? And all of a sudden they were talking about food shortages because we've become so dependent on getting our food at a a grocery store because none of us know how to go butcher a cow. It's like, oh, but I like my steak. Mankind is starving, bleeding, crying, suffering all over the globe. Hurricanes, droughts, tornadoes, and floods beat against man with unmastered fury. Man may enjoy a large degree of influence over nature and the animal creation, but he does not rule them. Well, we can shoot and kill them. We can outwit many of them. But they don't bow to us. They don't obey us. 
Indeed, man is not able to control his own self, his own passions, or even his own thoughts. A quick look at the newspaper will display this in terms of international, civic, and individual crisis that abound on every side. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, meaning mankind. That is an announcement of the problem that is extremely well backed up by the evidence at hand. The question is left asking is if if I can't exercise dominion now, if I am supposed to be created for dominion, if you're supposed to be created for dominion, if we're supposed to be doing this, if we are those people and we can't do it now, how do we do it in the world to come? There's awareness, but there's also a solution. His name is Jesus. And the second and third obstacles that we face are just a little bit less clearly, uh, uh, less directly stated, but I think they're clearly inferred in the text. We must, we must not neglect our Savior because we can't enjoy a relationship with God without Jesus. Look at verses 10 through 18. He comes down and he's like, For, for it's fitting that for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing, bringing many sons, 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 Sons. That's family language. That's intimate, relational language. That's a title given to to those who are closest and, and, and of us, like us. Sons to glory. Oh, wait a minute. This is another issue, right? Like we were created, we were crowned with glory, and now he's leading us as sons to glory. He goes on in verse, in, 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 in verse 11, we're going to be brothers of Jesus. I already called that out in verses 12 and 13, references to the Old Testament. Again, we're brothers and children, brothers of Jesus and children of God. In verse 14, we are God's children. Then in verse 17, again, we are Jesus' brothers. We are his family. But this is all made and done by the accomplishment and work of Jesus Christ. The turning point seems to come in verses 10 through 11. Immediately after the psalm, the, 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 Hebrew, the author of Hebrews turns and he focuses on our, after focusing on our inability to exercise dominion, he turns and he shows, not only could you not exercise dominion, you're not going to make it to glory unless you're led there as a son by Jesus. Then in verse 11, he's going to show us, For he who sanctifies, the one who actually makes people holy, that's what that word sanctifies means, the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy by him all have one source. And this, this is the reason that he's not ashamed to call us brothers because we are of the same God with Jesus, our brother. We're of the same father. This is... I, I don't know. I, can't, I, I don't know that I have an ability to really express the clearness, clearness of intimacy and unity that the author is striking here. He's choosing names and, and, and positions in family that can't be brought closer. Oh, but you know, everybody does have a relationship to God. In some sense, everyone is a child of God in that He is their Creator. But apart from Jesus, no one's enjoying that relationship. He's writing about a relationship that's actually fruitful and beneficial and desirable. A relationship in which we find tender care, loving kindness, protection, presence, provision, 
We see God working for us and not against us. Oh, everyone has a relationship with God, but apart from Jesus, it's not a relationship that we can enjoy. It's not a relationship of peace. It's not a relationship of, of contentment. It's a relationship of judgment and condemnation. And when we stand in front of him, we will be sent away from him. But it's through Jesus. It's through Jesus, because of Jesus, that this relationship is reconciled, that we're led to glory and made holy. Without him, we will not enjoy any relationship with God. So we must not, we must not neglect this Savior. We must not neglect our Savior because we can't overcome sin, suffering, and death without Jesus. Look at the last portions of this text. He turns, for for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And so Jesus is going to sing amongst the congregation, pointing people to God the Father. He's going to show, I'll trust him always. He's going to show that that together we are standing before this God. Since therefore, he goes on in verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham, that's his people. Therefore, he has been made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faithful, high priest. Brothers and sisters, without Jesus, we cannot overcome sin, suffering, and death. We, 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 we can't exercise dominion over the world. We, 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 can't, we can't attain glory apart from him. What in the world makes us think that we can satisfy the sin issue? How in the world can we overcome and, and defeat suffering if we can't even control the circumstance? If I can't control myself... How am I going to control all of the variable things that could come my way that could cause my suffering? There's nothing I could do to stop a lightning from from dropping out of the sky this morning and blasting me while I lay in my bed except by God's grace. How, how, How do we overcome that? But more importantly... We keep fighting to exercise dominion. We keep fighting and pressing and thinking that we're getting this stuff under control. We think we're making progress. Well, let's just put it in standard in a, in a, in a common current day issue. Oh man, and, and don't I'm not an anti-vax. I'm not. A, that's not what I'm about to say. But we got this vaccine. We got a vaccine. Yes, COVID's not going to rule us. We're going to get past the pandemic in a couple months. We're going to be sitting in here without masks on. Lord, I look forward to that day. But you know, tomorrow you might just die of cancer. We're praying for a family who has a, uh, I think he's 12, 13. Found out he has a brain tumor. What's that vaccine doing for him? I'm not trying to... We cannot escape this. I want you to hear and and understand the dire reality. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. I'm not trying to to, to paint such a bleak picture. I'm just trying to show you. We must not neglect Jesus. We must not drift from Him. There is no other salvation. There is no greater Savior. 
He became, listen, this is the solution. Oh, it sounds so hopeless, but here's the solution. Jesus became like us to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He became like us. He stepped into our flesh. He stepped into our circumstance. He he came into our existence. And he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We couldn't make it to glory. We couldn't exercise dominion. But who did? Jesus. He did. He walked on the water. He stopped the wind and the waves from blowing and about to tip that boat over. He made the blind see. He made the deaf hear. He made the lame walk. He, He made the deaf raise. This is God's power at work in Jesus, the man, the one who is truly God, truly became man. And he is the one in whom we find hope against all these dire consequences. This is why we must not neglect him. Jesus became like us to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Let's walk back through the text and just see what he did. Jesus paved the way for us to live in glory. He's the founder of our faith. Look at it in verse 9. After, the, after setting up the problem, after showing us our inability, our, our lack of cap- capacity and capability, the psalmist says, but we see him, meaning Jesus. We see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels. The God of heaven, the creator of the angels, stepped down. And for a little while was made lower than the angels with us. Right? We see him crowned with glory and honor because of what? The suffering of death. Because of his death and his subsequent and and consequent resurrection, we see him crowned with glory. So, So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He's our hope. He's the answer. He's the solution. Oh, we're aware of these problems. We're aware of these problems. We lie to ourselves about these problems, and we believe we can come up with some solutions. But here is the only greatest ever solution. His name is Jesus. And he, he came. He stepped into our existence. He put on flesh. He walked ahead of us. He is the founder of our faith, is what it says. That, that word, it means that he is the, the originator. He's the pioneer. He's the one that went first. He, he blazed a trail for us to follow through. And as a result, it goes on in verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, right? Like for whom and by, that's God, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, that's, the, that's our Savior, the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now here's the thing, and we, we got to deal with this just a little bit. What does it mean that Jesus became perfect? In our little minds, this is a difficult concept because we like to think of Jesus only in, eternal, in an eternal picture. Like, he has always been and always will be Jesus, God's Son, second person of the Trinity. Always been sinless, always been who he's been. God is unchanging. But, I don't know how this all works out. I just know this is what the Bible teaches. And somehow, I've got to align myself with it rather than come up with my own means and methods. At a point in time, God condescended to work in time. And make himself a little lower than the angels and step into time. He was born as a baby. And in that moment, he was as much a savior as he would be the day he raised and stepped out of that tomb. But there was a progression, a pathway, which he had to walk. A set of steps he had to get to to make it real. And only Jesus has ever, ever 
ever followed it all the way to completion. And that's really what it means that he became perfect. He's the perfect savior. I mean, he's the one that completed the work. He's the one that made it finished. He's the only one that ever, ever, ever has been or ever will be able to say it is finished. You consider all the other covenants, all the other ways that God has interacted with man. When he met Adam, he says, hey, you don't eat of that tree, but you rule and subdue. And what did Adam do? He and Eve ate of that tree and went their own way. He enters into covenant with Noah after the flood, right? Like, I'm not going to destroy the earth. Very quickly after Noah gets off the ark, where do we find him? Passed out drunk in his tent, naked. He enters into covenant with Abraham. Abraham's faith is true. It's real. Counted him as righteousness, but it is weak. And we see him stumbling and fumbling all the way. To the point that he decides to take things into his own hands and have his own son by his own wife, by, by another woman, other than the one promised he was going to have. Moses. Oh, man, Moses, he, he was a great leader. He was used of God in powerful ways for the people of Israel. Certainly, he's an image of Christ. As we look back in the Old Testament, we see a picture of the working of Christ. But Moses doesn't even get to enter into the promised land because he leaned in his own power. He depended upon himself, and at one moment, he lets his anger get the best of him. and He does what God says he shouldn't do. There's only one that has completed the work. There's only one that's become a perfect savior. His name is Jesus. This is what it means that he is our perfect savior. He didn't have to be cleansed from sin. In fact, the writer of Hebrews is going to be clear about this all the way through. He doesn't have to be cleansed from sin. He is sinless, always has been, always will be. But there was a real time and a real place in our, in, in, inside of time in which he was born and had to grow up without sin and had to live perfectly all the days of his life and fulfill the law of the Old Testament so that he could be a savior, so that one day he could hang on a cross in our place and for our sin, tasting death for us. And he did it. And he did it so well that when he he had been dead three days, he stepped up out of the grave and he walked around and he did more miracles and he taught more truths. And then one day he's standing before his disciples. He says, I want you to go tell them. I want you to go tell the world. I want you to make sure everyone knows. And I'm coming back one day to get you. But while I'm gone, you go, you make disciples, you teach them to obey all that I've commanded. You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You do these works because I'm your Savior. And that's that's why we're here. Jesus paved the way for us to live in this glory. Jesus reconciles us to our Heavenly Father. This is His work. It's so beautiful because here, Jesus, we come into verse 11, and Jesus is the one who sanctifies others. And there's this powerful picture. It's the first time I think I ever saw it was teaching through Luke when he goes up and he touches the leper's hand. And, and, and there's this picture that, that if you touch a leper, you become unclean. If, even if you didn't get leprosy, you're considered unclean for a period of time. Jesus steps into our existence and he steps alongside us and he touches us and instead of him becoming unclean, we become clean. We become holy because he is holy. And the source of his holiness is the source of our holiness. It is our God. He's the one that reconciles us to him. He's the one that makes our relationship so intimate, so close. He's the one that makes us acceptable to be able to stand in front of God and even think towards his glory. This is the work of Christ. His testimony continues to testify to that, and and it continues to challenge us, to to lead us to praise God. His unshakable faith in the darkest, dreariest days of his life as he hung on that cross. Why? I'm missing the quote, Eli, Eli, Bakhtani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And immediately following, into your hands, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. His final words, profession of faith, trust in the Father. In the darkest and dreariest days of his life, he is always trusting his Father. And he's telling us and calling us to do the same. And together, because he has made us these people, we will stand praising the God that is our Father who's given us this great brother. Jesus is the one that reconciles us to this heavenly Father. Every other Savior that you can look to will lead you to some other God. Don't miss that. Every other promise of salvation that this world offers will lead you to worship some other God. It will reconcile you to a false God. And it will trap you in the place that Jesus has delivered us from, sin and death. Jesus is the one that delivers us from sin and death. He's the one that puts on flesh, becomes like us, makes us clean. He's the one that does this work. And and in 14 and 17, this might be the clearest expression of how he becomes like us to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He, 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 but because we take, partook in flesh and blood, he takes that on. He became like us in every way. For what reason? To destroy death and the one who holds the power of death. Because you and I can't do it. To become faithful and merciful high priest. We're going to deal with this much fuller in the days and weeks to come. But he is going to mediate our relationship with God. He is the one in which we now stand. Now stands between us and God. He is the one that in, in, in him. It's not you. Don't, 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 don't think that you've achieved something. Don't think that you are, are okay. Well now I, I got Jesus so I got saved. Now I can stand in front of God on my own. No, 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 no. In Christ, you are these things. That's why we must never neglect it. We must never drift away because if we drift away, we begin to depend on something else. We begin to run to another God. We begin to look to ourselves to make ourselves and keep ourselves acceptable to to God. And that's what was probably happening with these first Hebrew Hebrew Christians is that they were drifting back. Okay, well, we got Jesus, but we really like the law. We really feel comfortable in the law not knowing. If they run after that law, they run to another God. Not that it wasn't the same God that gave the law, but that God, the God who gave it, said, that's not enough. You're going to have to depend on yourselves. You're going to have to work it out on your own, and you are not enough. Jesus delivers us from the power of sin and death by destroying death, the one who holds the power of death, that's Satan, becoming a mediator for us to stand between us and God so that when God looks on us as his children, he sees his son, Jesus the pain chart, a bunch of you are nurses, you got, you got that pain chart that's got the smiley face on one end and the frowny face on the other end, and then there's that mediocre, mediocre face in the middle. And you're always asked, well, how, how, what kind of pain you're in? I don't ever know how to answer that question because I assume that I'm always at the biggest frowny face there is because I don't like any kind of pain. And if they can make any pain go away, I'll, I'll take it, right? Like, just make me not hurt. But here's the beauty of what happens in Christ. In Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see a mediocre face. He doesn't see a frowny face. He looks at you and smiles because you are holy in Christ. You have been crowned with the glory of Christ. You will one day exercise dominion under the headship of Christ. Christ. And no, we don't don't see it all played out in front of us today. We still struggle. We still face temptation. 
Oh, but one day it's all going to be gone. We're going to stand in his presence. And that temptation, that desire to go from him, that, that, that proneness to wander will be gone. And we will stand in front of him and he'll smile on us because Jesus Christ, our Savior, became like us so that he could lead us to our Father and give us the glory that we were created for. Make us what we can't be on our own. We must not neglect the salvation provided by Jesus Christ because there is no greater salvation. And there is no greater Savior. Let's pray.